When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It takes sometimes a certain amount of courage to take risk and crisis markets and fast markets are the time when you make money, right? Like when it's slow and quiet, it's just harder to make money. Volatility is what you want as a trader. Hi everyone and welcome to my life in four trades. I'm Andreas Larsen from the Real Vision community and it is my pleasure to host one of the best traders that I know Brent Donnelly uh, for a discussion on his life in four trades today. Brent, welcome to the show. Hey, Andreas, great to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too, Brent. Um, Brent, you're currently the president of Spectra Markets, but you have a long career behind you in, for example, FX trading in top tier banks uh, in the US. But before we get to um, the four trades that sort of painted your life in trading, uh, I would like to get a brief introduction to to you as a trader and how you got into to finance. So please enlighten us a bit uh, on your career. Sure. So I, yes, that as you said, I have been a spot FX trader for most of my life, but I did some other stuff in between. I was trading my own money for five years, uh, trading single names during the, the dot-com bubble. And I traded at a hedge fund for three years as well. So I've kind of traded like a lot of different capital sizes, which I think has given me a different perspective on trading. But you're right, my specialty has been FX. And the way that I got into it was really from a young age, I got interested in in trading probably when I was about 14 or 15. It was in the period of when Wall Street, the movie came out, uh, Liars Poker came out. So there was kind of like trading was in the zeitgeist at that time. And kind of one of the funny things is that those are both cautionary tales, really, right? They're like Michael Lewis wrote Liar's Poker uh, more as a cautionary tale than as like an invitation to come to Wall Street. But um, and the same thing with the movie Wall Street. It's a cautionary tale. Yet both of them kind of were cool and attracted me to the idea of coming to Wall Street. So Initially, I think I was attracted to the money side of it because, you know, Liar's Poker and the and the movies and all that make Wall Street look kind of like this glitzy place where you can make a lot of money, which is somewhat true. But then I think part of the reason it stuck with me or I stuck with it was not the money, but much more like the puzzle solving and math and sort of just like the fascinating idea of this extremely complex puzzle that can never really be solved, but you're all you're trying to do is like temporarily solve it long enough to make some money um, before the regime changes and everything changes. So that's why I've stuck with it for so long is just that I, I really enjoy it. So there's an interesting aspect of that where my observation would be generally people that are in trading for the money don't succeed because it's so grueling and dispiriting sometimes that you have to have another motivation. And so I guess my like sort of underlying motivation always was fascination with math and puzzles. And that's why global macro appeals to me because it's like this, you know, if you look at what the variables are in 
2022 versus 2021 versus 2018 or any other year, it's constantly changing, right? And I think that's a, a really fascinating part of it that's kept me hooked hooked on trading for so many years. One of the things that fascinates me in terms of trading is how the environment that you grow up in as a trader tends to shape you uh, in terms of opinions and trading styles, etc. I'm born and raised in a world without interest rates. Uh, so I admittedly really struggled this year uh, with sort of a regime shift in interest rate markets. What was the environment like when you entered financial markets, Brent? Well, so when I entered, it was actually before the euro, right? So um, coming into FX spot trading in 1995-96, you know, there was uh, the Deutschmark, obviously, and we traded Mark Spain, Mark Paris, Mark Lira. So in terms of currencies, that, that was a major difference. But also a really big difference now is the volumes and the number of players is so much greater now that the, the so the microstructure is so much different. I mean, when I started, you were transacting through voice brokers. There was really like three or four major players in every currency and then a couple of hedge funds that would participate here and there. And now there's just thousands of, you know, thousands of hedge funds, millions of retail traders. So the, the microstructure is is very, very different. Like in those days, people would try to push the market around and stuff like that. And certainly that's pretty much impossible in, in FX now. And then I think also now the monetary policy and and sort of like central planning aspect of markets is very, very different. So I, I think it always goes to understanding the regime that you're in, but also being open to the fact that regimes are never, never last forever and being ready for the new regime. So I think that's like a fundamental aspect of good trading is understanding that, you know, whatever you grew up in or what you made money in, uh, because that's an important one too, is not just ones that you made that you grew up in, but environments where you made a lot of money, you tend to have some subconscious dream that that environment will come back. So, you know, fast markets like 2008, a lot of people made a lot of money um, and then everyone's playing for the next crash. But, you know, you can wait a long time uh, waiting for that for that crash to come. The first trade uh, you wanted to highlight for us today was made prior to the dot-com bubble uh, in the early 2000s. So please take us through the environment uh, heading into this dot-com bubble and, and uh, the trade that you um, that you wanted to highlight. Sure. So when I started in FX, it was very flow-driven um, and there wasn't a lot of like take risk-taking as the way that I would think about it. And so I felt it was like a little bit like dealing blackjack all day or something like that. If you loved blackjack and you thought, oh, like I love blackjack, I'm going to go deal blackjack all day. And then you realize, oh, this isn't really all that fun because I'm not controlling the decisions. Um, it's more like clients are just telling me what to do and I'm executing. And it was more of like a kind of a broker role. So I quit and I went home to trade the dot-com bubble. I went back to Canada and I did very, very well at first. Like I, I had $25,000 basically was my net worth. Um, And I built that up to about $400,000 over about two years from like 99 to 01 kind of thing. And that was a pretty good accomplishment because I was paying my rent out of there. I bought like an M3. I had a whole bunch of, you know, I was spending a lot of money and still my account was going up a lot. And so the first trade, and this kind of references back to something I said before, 
was a bad trade in that. So I had my certain methodology and it was the way that I traded, which was capturing a lot of bid offer on very high value stocks and using futures uh, as kind of like the linchpin of direction. So like trying to get on the bid in stocks when the futures were rallying, you know, in those days we had a squawk to the pit and you could hear like the volumes picking up and futures are starting to rally. So you get on the bid in a few stocks and try to make a spread basically. And so at that time, I wanted stocks that were very high valued because you wanted to transact the minimum number of shares possible because you were paying brokerage in those days, right? So you want to buy a stock at 100 and sell it at 101 and make, you know, a dollar on 300 shares, that's $300 and you do that five times in a day, you know, times 250 days, that's 400 grand. So that was kind of the way that I was trading. So every morning I would print out a, sh uh, a sheet of all the stocks above $100 and it was like four pages in 99, 2000. And then by th then everything crashed obviously. And by 2001, when I printed that off, it was four, there were only four stocks. So there were four stocks trading above 100 at that time. So it made it harder to find ways to capture big bid offer. But then after that, decimalization came in. So before 2001, stocks traded in fractions in the US. So it would be like 100 and a quarter to 100 and a half or whatever. And for that reason, mathematically, that meant stocks tended to trade wider. And there wasn't really an algorithmic aspect to stock trading at that time. There weren't algorithms front running, you know, all the bids and all that the way there are now. So then decimalization happened and the stock prices had all gone from like all these stocks above 100 to basically none. And so what ended up happening was I was doing the same trade still, which was like riding the momentum of S&Ps, capturing the bid offer. But the thing was, so, and I was still making money. So I was net positive, or sorry, I was gross positive almost every day still doing the same thing. But I was paying so much brokerage at that point because if you're doing it with stocks that are trading at $50 versus $200, you have to do four times as many shares. So I was paying four times as much bro. And so the fundamental thing that I didn't realize or that I didn't, which seems really obvious in hindsight, was that we had entered a completely different regime and I wasn't willing to acknowledge that because I had made so much money doing this certain strategy that had a lot of edge and I wasn't able or willing to switch or to recognize, okay, this doesn't work anymore, so I'm going to stop doing it. I just kept doing it and trying to tweak it. And then so my account started getting smaller and smaller and smaller because then I was losing, paying so much bro that I was losing money. So really the bad trade there was to not recognize the regime shift and to just keep doing what's not working. And the thing, though, is that in a way, I'm kind of glad that happened because something that I've been really good at since then is, like I was referencing earlier, is understanding when regimes are shifting and adapting quickly. So, for example, like people were making a lot of money buying calls on earnings in, in 2021. And like, so you bought Zoom, one week Zoom calls two days before earnings and made like 20X on those, you know, people were doing that <laughs> quite regularly. And that stopped working in 2022. And I know from talking to a lot of younger traders who would be about the same age as I was in 1999, that people just kept doing the same thing over and over, even though it stopped working, kind of hoping, oh, maybe it'll work this time, maybe it'll work this time. And in contrast, what you need to do is 
be a little bit early in recognizing the regime shifts. Because like when someone says to me, like, oh, I'm a really good breakout trader, but I'm not very good, you know, in range markets. That's a huge red flag because I think what you should be able to do is adapt to what the market's paying or what the market's rewarding. And so that was a really good, a very bad trade for me because I had to end up going back to get a real job uh, because of it. But in the end, it worked out. And it's also an example of like, if you fail and you learn from the failure, then I don't really chalk it up as a failure because it kind of led to future success. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Being born in 1989, I, I cannot really say that I traded the dot-com bottle to any extent, but um, I wanted to pick your brain on the similarities between what we've experienced this year to the dot-com bubble. How big are the similarities between the tech sell of this year and uh, what you experienced during the dot-com bubble? Uh, very, very similar. So it's actually mind-blowing. So <laughs> I, I read recently a quote that said, finance is the only industry or the only field where we don't learn, we just keep repeating the same mistakes over and over. So I remember tweeting something about Shopify and Zoom and saying like that price to sales is were around 100. And to me, price to sales is a pretty clean ratio because it, it's harder to fudge than price earnings. And I tweeted that and I said like Cisco and most of the things in, the, in 1999 got to like 40 or 50 times sales and that was like extreme bubble. And I got millions of, of hate, like a lot of hate saying, you know, Zoom and Shopify are changing the world and all this kind of stuff. And so like the biggest thing that is similar was people fell in love with the story and never looked at, at what they're paying for the story. Like no matter how, how good a company is, there's still a price at which it's too expensive, right? Like if you look at like a McLaren F whatever, like a F1 or P1 or whatever, like some super expensive car. Yes, it's the best car in the world, but it's only still worth $1.2 million. If you pay $15 million for, for a P1, you're paying the wrong price. You're getting a good car, but you're paying the wrong price. And when you go to sell that car, you're going to lose a lot of money. So I think that was one mistake that was very similar was the people being attracted to these stories and not understanding that there's a, only so much of a price that you can pay for stories. The other thing was, and it's kind of related, was like the religious fervor, you know, around Web3, around the disruptors, around Kathy Wood and that whole ecosystem. It was very similar in 1999. It was B2B, which is like business to business, um, was like the, one of the, this is going to change the world. And it kind of did change the world. But, you know, anyone that invested in that lost, basically lost all their money. So the, I guess the similarity from a psychological point of view was that there was this very religious feeling that this was like a watershed moment in technology and in history, and that was going to change the world. And it's probably correct both times, but that doesn't mean those stocks are good investments. In, in fact, it probably means they're bad investments. And my guess is that in 2040, we'll just do the, all the same thing again, and there'll be some new other new technology, and it'll all be the same thing again, right? Because you know, 1999 wasn't the first bubble either. You know, there's been plenty of other bubbles. And I guess the difficulty, though, 
is that even having lived through 99 and 2000 and identifying in 2021, because I wrote about it a bunch of times, the similarities, is that it's really hard to make money even if you know it's a bubble because it's very difficult to short because of the timing has to be perfect. And so actually what a lot of people do is they just cynically go along the bubble thinking that they'll get out before everyone else. Like, I know it's a bubble, but I'm just going to ride it kind of thing. And that's very difficult too. So the problem with bubbles is that even when you identify them, which is, you know, half the battle, it's still very hard to make money. So really in a bubble, I think part of it is just is surviving without getting your your head blown off. And so I think like I did that well, uh, but it's not like I was short everything. Like I was short a bit of crypto and stuff like that at, at a few moments and, and made money. But it is very difficult to short bubbles because the momentum is so powerful. So right in between the dot-com bubble in the early 2000s and the pandemic bubble uh, in the early 2020s, we obviously had the great financial crisis of 2008. How do you remember that crisis from a trader's lens? Yeah, so that was a wild time. Um, and I would consider that, so we're using like the term trade here a little bit more broadly and not one trade, but more like a trading cycle or, or you know, a, a way of trading. So the first one I described as a bad trade, which is I didn't adapt to a new regime. And then in 08, I think I did, uh, that, that was a very good trade for me. It was very good for my career because I kind of saw it coming, not, not necessarily the subprime mortgage crisis, but more the change in markets was you could feel this visceral, you know, like when someone sold 50 million Kiwi uh, New Zealand dollars in 2007, it wouldn't move at all. In 08, you could feel like, man, this is imp it's impossible to sell. It's impossible to buy. There was pretty early on, you could feel that things were starting to break. And so in 2008, there was basically two things that happened. One was uh, as, a, as a trader, one, you either like embraced it and said like, wow, this is a huge moment and I'm going to go like, I'm going to embrace risk and kind of be courageous, right? Like, and so what I kind of did, so I was the dollar yen trader at Lehman Brothers, which is sort of like the epicenter of it because dollar yen at that time was trading off of Lehman Brothers stock because Lehman Brothers stock was kind of considered the barometer of the financial crisis for a long time. So there's a lot of like circular aspects to that. But at one point early on, I was just like kind of said to myself, like, holy shit, this is absolutely huge. This is going to be massive, a massive opportunity as a market maker and as a, as a risk taker. So I kind of just decided like, I'm just going to not be scared and I'm going to go all in when, whenever it makes sense to do so. And because so many people had pulled back from risk taking at that time, there were just these incredible opportunities. So there were essentially two things that people did. One was like what I described, which was just embrace the risk and embrace the, the mayhem, embrace the chaos. And then a lot of people just went and hid under the desk and like hoped that it would would be over. And so for me, like I made a lot of money in 08, but also I think my approach got recognized. And then that was like one year that kind of made my reputation for like the next five years because I was like one of the people that killed it during the crisis. And so the lesson for people listening, especially people that are trading actively, is that it takes sometimes a certain amount of courage to take risk. And 
crisis markets and fast markets are the time when you make money, right? Like when it's slow and quiet, it's just harder to make money. Volatility is what you want as a, as a trader. And what you'll see on a lot of trading floors is people complaining that it's not volatile and that uh, this is so boring. These are bad markets. And then when the shit hits the fan, the same people are complaining that it's too volatile and it's there's no liquidity and I can't get out. So, you know, you got to be you got to pick one or the other. And so I think you when when you identify as a trader like, OK, this is a crazy market, you know, you recalibrate because your position sizes have to match the volatility. But then you in that framework, like in a contained risk taking framework that's rigorous and that acknowledges, OK, you can't have the same position size now as before because it's much more volatile. But in that framework, you then go, OK, I'm going to be really aggressive and I'm not going to be scared. And, you know, when the thing's down two and a half percent and my instinct is to sell, actually, no, I know that like th this is how overbought it got the last three times or how oversold it got last three times. So I'm going to buy even though it's, you know, very scary to buy. So sometimes you have to be able to do the scary thing um, and have the courage. And so that kind of 01 lesson of identifying regime shifts and then kind of my age and my experience in 08 kind of combined and I was like ready for that moment. So yeah, that was, 08 was definitely a very good trade for me. If we look at the sentiment across investors in the early 2000s in the dot-com bubble during the great financial crisis of 2008 and the tech sell-off uh, after the pandemic, what's your assessment of the sentiment we've seen this year in comparison to the great financial crisis and the dot-com bubble? So there are some metrics that make it look similar to 08 in terms of um, you know just sentiment of sur surveys and things like that. But to me, it's absolutely nothing like 08. And that's part of why I don't think 2022, I don't think this bear market is over, is that there's been very little fear. You know, VIX has barely gone above 30. There hasn't been much panic in terms of, there's been moments of definitely of liquidation and people definitely have been bearish. So that shows up in the sentiment indicators. But in terms of like that visceral, like, holy crow, this is the world's ending kind of thing. Or so there's usually two ways things end other that which is like the world's ending and then the Fed bails everyone out um, is one or just that like absolute despair, like at the end of the 70s, the death of equities was the cover of Business Week. Um, at the end of 2002, I would say people were like, you know, stock market's stupid. It's a waste of time. I'm going back to be a dentist or whatever. Because um, a lot of people, actually, that's another similarity between 2000 and 2021 is all the people quitting their jobs uh, to become day traders. So that was a very similar similar thing too. Is in 1999, it was E-Trade and the baby commercials and all that. And in 2021, it was Robinhood and the confetti on the app and all that. But essentially, it's the same thing, right? Is sucking in people to make them think that they can make money trading. But really what it is, is just that a bull market generates a lot of money for everyone. And when that bull market ends, then that separates like who's really a trader and who was just long and wrote it up. So, uh, Brent, I wanted to ask you, after the um, the great financial crisis, you obviously had to leave Lehman um, due to circumstances we all know. Uh, so what happened after? Uh, where did you move? Right. So I would put that again in the category of kind of a bad trade. Uh, but then I'll explain it 
you know, as it's kind of my philosophy. And I think it's sort of like the cliche of, you know, failure can lead to success. And so you just, if you view life as just this big, long series of experiments, which is kind of how I see it, then, you know, failures are okay. It's just, you know, not every experiment succeeds. Um, But when I left Lehman, I went to a hedge fund. And so the environment is very different. And so initially it was very good. I learned a lot. But one really tough part of that transition was I went from like the chaos of a trading floor, you know, the it's fun, you're, you're part of a big team, you're talking to clients, I was writing a piece every day. So there was like this very dynamic job that I was doing that had all these different pillars to it or different like lanes, I guess. And then when I went to the hedge fund, you know, you're sitting in a quiet room, there's 12 people, nobody's talking, all you hear is tippity tap on the keyboard. If you want to talk on the phone, you go to the phone room. So like nobody's talking at all. So that's like a pretty dramatic culture shock coming from like a, a team environment where everyone's screaming all the time and stuff. So that was one thing. But then the biggest thing that I found as so I was at a hedge fund for three years. The biggest thing that I found that I missed and the, the reason I didn't like being at a hedge fund was more like an individual thing. So the fund that I worked at was great. Like I sat next to the head of risk and he was like an awesome guy and I got along well with everyone. But the thing that I found was I really missed writing. So since 2004, I always wrote this daily and it was kind of part of my trading process, right? So I'd sit down in the morning, I kind of like go through all the charts, go through what, read everything that was going on and then come up with kind of my best idea or my like strongest thoughts. And then I would write them, send them out. And that became the anchor of my trading because it, it always at least forced me to, to think a little bit more slowly in the morning. And so when you work at a hedge fund, there's no audience for a daily. So I wasn't writing. And so what would happen a lot of times I found was I would I would walk in and it was the middle of the eurozone crisis. So like there'd be a headline Spain downgraded and I'd just sell 100 euros kind of mindlessly just on reacting to a headline or reacting to price action. And so I felt like my trading wasn't as good because I wasn't anchored on a on a firm plan. And of course, like I can write, I could write my own thing. And but it, it's a little bit like, you know, cooking for yourself or cooking for a group, you know, like since I'm writing for an audience, my writing is a lot better than if I would try to write for myself. But then you get distracted. And, you know, I just I found generally that from a trading point of view, the writing was really valuable, but then also from an intellectual point of view. So going all the way back to like my 1998 experience, part of the reason I left initially was that trading flow wasn't intellectually stimulating enough, like it was just too robotic. And so in a very different way, I found working at a hedge fund also wasn't stimulating both sides of my brain. Like, of course it stimulates the math part and, and all that. And like the logic and puzzle solving part, but the creative part of my brain wasn't being activated. And I felt like I didn't realize until I didn't do it anymore, how much the writing just gives me satisfaction in life. And that's part of the reasons I've written the books about trading and stuff is just, I like getting what's in my head out in via writing. And I feel like it helps me process things. It helps my thinking. Like it makes, I think it improves my thinking. And so what happened was the first year I was there, I did well. The second year I was kind of flat and I didn't know if it was just like, I'm not really making money. Maybe that's why I don't like it. So it's hard to tell sometimes if you're, if you're dispirited about trading, 
or there's actually something fundamentally about the role that you don't like. And I couldn't really tell. And then the third year, I started out really, really well. Like I crushed it in the first quarter that I was there. And I still was kind of like dragging myself into work a little bit. Like I wasn't enjoying it as much as I, I felt like I should be. And that was kind of what opened my eyes to the role specifically of working at a hedge fund wasn't as good as I thought because it didn't allow me to do all these things that I enjoyed doing, which was, you know, part of it, not just writing, but also I like talking to clients. And I also feel like part of my edge is this network effect of talking to a lot of people and you get an idea of like, wow, like everyone I talked to today is bullish dollar yen and they're all like max long. You know, that is a much more useful sentiment indicator than like looking at CFTC data that's from last Tuesday or whatever. So all of that ended up being that um, I had gone to the hedge fund and I was there for three years and I ended up, so I, I, I kind of felt like that was a bad trade on paper because, you know, it probably cost me a lot of money because I would have made more money working at a bank for those three years, et cetera. But really, I learned so much from that experience, not only about like appreciating the dynamic role that I have now um, in, in a more like in a more deep way, but also, you know, like I trade a lot of oil futures and gold and I did a lot of different stuff like that. And also one big difference of working at a hedge fund is the risk management approach is much more rigorous generally at a hedge fund than it is at banks, just because that's what a hedge fund does. Whereas a bank is doing many things. It's talking to clients and market making and all that. So it's not just like a pure risk taking business. So I felt like I learned a lot about risk management, especially about scaling from smaller account size to massive account, like massive notionals. So I feel like all the stuff that I learned made me a better trader, but also I think it made me a better bank employee, like a better person to talk to clients because I sat in the same seat they're sitting in. So I understand, I have a better understanding of what they need and what they want. I, I left the biggest trading floor in Northern Europe late last year to join a private equity company within real estate. And I agree with you, Brent, the silence is scary as beep <laughs> when you leave a trading floor and, and, and join an, a, a much more long-term setup. It's tough. Yeah. Especially depending on your personality. Like some people like that, right? But if you're an extrovert, it's harder. It's harder to be in that environment. You have to adapt for sure. Friend, I, I wanted to move on to the last trade that you brought with you today, um, a good trade from the same period of time. So, so please speak to that trade and, and what you learned from it. Sure. Um, so that this trade is actually the forward to my book. So uh, have you seen uh, Indiana Jones, the, the original Indiana Jones? Yeah. Yeah. So one of my favorite things about that movie is it just starts right away. Like the guy, he's walking through the forest and the the blow dart hits the tree and everyone's like, what's going on? I always like movies that start like that. Um, you know, that's just one example. So I wanted to start my book with like something exciting or interesting, even though it's more of like an educational book. So I, I put the story of when I was at the hedge fund. So one of the ways that I trade is called lead lag um, or intermarket correlation, which is looking at other markets to try to get a clue of what your market's going to do. And so I'll look at like, say, what is crude oil doing? And what does that mean for Canada, uh, for Canadian equities or Canadian for the currency? And one specific thing that has worked for a very long time is looking at interest rates versus dollar yen. 
So generally, Japan is the biggest pool of savings in the world historically. And so they want to invest in things that have yield. And generally, Japan doesn't have a lot of yield. So when yields go higher, Japanese money goes into those things. So they sell yen and they buy whatever that thing is. And the anchor of all that usually is U.S. treasuries. So if U.S. yields go up, dollar yen goes up. If U.S. yields go down, dollar yen goes down. And that's one of the, the truest intermarket relationships in FX since I started. And specifically, like since 2005, I've been watching it very closely. And so there was a period, there was a point in 2010 that would have been like late April, early May, when yields were starting to come off and dollar yen was pinned very high for some reason. And a lot of times what that is, is that there's a reason these things dislocate. So the underlying driver of both of those dollar yen and yields is the U.S. economy, Fed policy. And so, you know, if the U.S. economy is doing well and the Fed's going to hike, both of those things, yields and dollar yen are probably going up. And if things look bad in the U.S., both of those things generally go down. That's kind of like the reason that they both move together is there's the third driver, which is the U.S. economy. But sometimes they'll dislocate. And one of the reasons that they dislocate is simply that there's flows in one market that aren't in the other. So let's say like things are looking worse in the U.S., but there's a corporation that did an M&A and they need to buy $20 billion yen. So, you know, yields start going tick, 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 lower. But dollar yen just stays up here because, you know, that whoever that is, that corporation doesn't care what yields are doing. They're just buying their $20 billion yen. But then when, when they're done, dollar yen goes down and catches up to yields. That's kind of like the theory of, and I mean, it's really the practice of how, that's how it works. I mean, I've seen the orders coming through working at a bank. And those orders create distortions, and you're trying to identify them. So in 2010, yields started coming off. There was like people were getting a bit nervous about. It. There was a bunch of stuff like people thought maybe that you know the bounce from 09 was fizzling. So the U.S. economy it was like a mid-cycle slowdown kind of thing. Uh, the eurozone crisis was starting, so people were kind of starting to get nervous. So yields started coming off, but dollar yen just would not come off. So I was short dollar yen, and sometimes these trades can be real, like he smash your head against the keyboard type situation because it requires a lot of patience and it doesn't work every time. So at some point you have to stop out, right? So um, I hope I have the levels right, but dollar yen was around 99 and there was protection of a barrier there. So basically one bank was selling like tons and tons of dollar yen right at that level. And so my stop loss was gonna be above there. And so dollar yen was going up here and fizzling, going up here, fizzling, going up here, fizzling. And so this was going on for days and days. And I had a big position and I was trying to like just ride it out and like, you know, good trading takes courage kind of thing. Um, and like the market won't move when you want it to move. It just moves whenever it's ready kind of thing. So I had my stop loss there and I go out for a run. And in those days, it was BlackBerry still. And my BlackBerry starts buzzing. I'm like, what the hell? And, and I just ignore it and I keep running. Then it buzzes again. I'm like, all right, I stop and I check. And dollar yen was down like 200 points. And that like was a big move. I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. So it went from 99 to 97 or something like that. And on my position, that, that was decent cash. So I run back to the office and get, get back to my seat. And now dollar yen's at like 95.50 or something like that. But then, so still in those days, we had the, the squawk from the S&P. And I would encourage, I don't know, maybe we can link it after or something, but 
for people to listen to the squawk. So the day I'm referring to was the day of the flash crash in 2010 when stocks did the flash crash. So I had my headphones on and I had Dead Mouse playing in there and you could play, you could have two things playing. So Dead Mouse is like EDM. And I had, so I had electronic music and the squawk going and the squawk guy just starts going ape shit. Like, 50 at 60, 60 at 50, like, like Kentucky Derby style, like screaming. So stocks started collapsing and then dollar yen. So dollar yen's like 96, 95, 94, 93. And then, so it was like one of the best trades of my entire life. And so I start taking profit around 92, 50. I probably have the levels wrong, but give or take, this is close enough. So I start taking profit around 92, 50 or something like that. And then all of a sudden, I just like, you know, when you're in the zone, you don't have a lot of time to think about stuff. And things were happening really fast. The squawk screaming in my ears, everyone on the floor, even though it was a quiet floor, was like saying, holy crow, like stocks were collapsing for, and no one knew why. And so I had made one of those stupid like point of time decisions that like this has come too far, but I didn't have any logic. It was just more like a... Uh, knee jerk thing. So I start flipping long at like 9250. So now I'm long dollar yen and I was up like I don't know 4 million dollars or something at that point of PL. And then dollar yen keeps going and the flash crash continues. So it's like 92, 91, 90, 89 and then I'm sitting there. So I've gone from like 3 and a half million or something of PL. Now I'm down like or now I'm up like 800 grand. And I didn't even know why I was long dollars. It was kind of one of those, like, I just did it reactively, like into intuitive feel that we had come too far. So now this like one week trade that I had managed perfectly and sat there and been super patient now in the space of like, this is probably all this is happening probably in like eight minutes or something like that. So in that eight minute period, this whole thing that I had done perfectly for a whole week had now basically been zeroed and I was almost down on the day. So then it keeps on going. So then I'm like, shit, I got to put a stop loss somewhere. So I left a stop loss at 87.49 and Dalian goes, boom, 87.50 given and then bounces. And then things started to stabilize for a second. And I could hear the the flash crash guy or the, the pit squat guy was like a little bit less crazy. And then I kind of came to my senses. And then, so even though now I was actually down like $1.4 million on the day, I was like, okay, this now is definitely going to bounce. You can feel like the electricity of the of the moment has subsided. And those crashy kind of moves require like a certain amount of electricity. And as soon as the electricity subsides, that's part of the edge of being on a trading floor is you feel that electricity subside. Um, so I bought even more and then it starts ticking, ticking, ticking higher. And then again, another, so part of the reason I put it in the book is there's so many behavioral things that I did wrong during this episode. So like kind of like on paper, I had this great trade and I did it perfectly. But then I started doing all these behavioral things that that are totally wrong. So one thing people do is they'll anchor on entry levels, exit levels, PL levels. So basically as dollar yen started going back up and people sort of were realizing, okay, this was some kind of algorithmic weird thing that happened in stocks and it made no sense. So like that's even more reason to be long dollar yen or, or long stocks. And so, but as soon as dollar yen got to the point where my PL was back to high water, which is like 3.8 million or whatever, I was like, okay, thank you. I made a stupid mistake. I'm out. And then it kept on going. Like it went back all the way back up to like 96 or something. So I, I could have been up like $10 million that day. So I think it's a good story in that it kind of captures everything about trading 
which is that like you need to have a plan, you need to execute the plan, but then you also have to avoid all the behavioral things, you know, like whether it's panic, which I didn't do, but like doing trades with no edge just because, you know, it's come too far too fast and um, all the dumb stuff, even like very smart people do a lot of dumb stuff when they're trading. And so this trade kind of captured like all the smart things that I could do and all the dumb stuff that I could do or that many people do um, all in one nutshell. And it obviously ended up being a good trade, but I thought it also it's just interesting from the point of view of how it captured. Like I think in the book, I labeled like 20 different behavioral elements of the trade. Like it, it just captures everything that's great and terrifying and fun and bad about trading. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's a really fascinating story, Brent, uh, and it leads me to the final two questions I have. I ask these questions to all traders I interview on the platform uh, because I find them so interesting in terms of how to risk manage over time. First question is, in a scenario that you just depicted with a flash crash running, how do you stay true to your risk management principles when everything is falling apart? So that's a great question. And I think what one thing that I learned was over, over the years is there's two ways to approach it. One, you can you can be disciplined and extremely disciplined and robotic. But if that's not your personality, at some point you recognize, which is what I did, instead of saying like, okay, next time I'll be more disciplined, next time I'll be more disciplined, what I came to a realization was like, okay, I'm not very disciplined in those situations. So instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to automate my stop loss. So for me, that's a really important part of my process is every time I put a trade on, I always put a stop loss in, in a system. And of course, you can like override it and stuff like that, but that requires a little bit more effort. So there's two ways you can do it. If you So if you overtrade, what you want to do is create friction to make it harder to trade, like don't have an app on your phone and stuff like that. And if there's something that you should be doing that you're not, then automate it. So either have like a person doing it or have it automated, which is in FX because it's liquid, you can you can put stops and everything. So I think that's an absolutely critical part of, of risk management is automate everything you possibly can. And I think actually of, of the entire trading process, depending on you know what kind of institution you're working at, if you can automate, the more stuff you can automate, um, especially around risk management, I think the more powerful and consistent your trading will be. One of the sort of common traits of the best investors I personally know is that they can be basically long and short, the same asset with the same conviction. So do you have any tips on how to stay true to that principle, Brent? Right. So that's an interesting one because when I was a little bit younger, I used to go to visit all the clients, like all the famous hedge funds and all that. And I was always talking with senior PMs, but not the founder of the fund. And so I would always ask them, what makes that guy, it was always, it's always a guy in, in this case, interesting or different as a trader. And almost every single time, to, to your point, people would say, we'll go in the morning meeting and he's telling us why he's bullish and he's long a million shares of XYZ. And then I look at the report at the end of the day and he's short 500,000 shares of XYZ. 
And so that's kind of this concept of uh, strong opinions weekly held. So you have to believe in your, it, it's a really tough because it, it's, it's, a, they're conflicting ideals, right? The ideal is you have to have super high conviction and believe in what you're doing and have the courage to, to go all in when the, the time is right. But then you also have to be receptive to new information that contradicts what you thought three hours ago. And so, you know, in a bad expression of that, what it can lead to is just you're selling the lows and buying the highs because you just keep changing your mind. So what you have to have is a strong framework that leads you to decisions, but then clear reasons why you'll change your mind. And I think that's a good way of looking at it is you have reassessment triggers. You say either technically or, you know, if if I'm doing this trade because oil is doing something, then if oil reverses, obviously this trade doesn't make as much sense and I'll reevaluate. So having more like logical reasons to reassess and not just reacting to, to price action and buying and selling, buying it because it's going up and selling it's selling because it's going down. And that's a really, really hard thing to do. But I think the ability to flip, in my opinion, is a really strong characteristic of a trader, but it's very difficult. It, it truly is. Brent, it's been a pleasure to unpack your life as a trader in uh, four trades. Uh, ultimately here, if uh, our audience wants to follow your thoughts or read your books, where can they find them? Sure. So uh, I'm on Twitter. That's an easy one. And then if you go to spectramarkets.com, that's, that's the website for my company. And you can see all my writing. And uh, my newest book is called Alpha Trader. It's on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. Good stuff, friend. Uh, thanks so much for joining my life in four trades, friend. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Andres. All right. That's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. 